Ronaldinho to Messi. Will he get that first goal for Barcelona? Remember the name, Lionel Messi, at the age of 17, scores his first goal for Barcelona. Back to Mbappé! What a great day it's been for him! Oh, spectacular Thiago! Alan, look, very accomplished player himself, and Alan in behind goes for goal! What a start to his Dortmund career! One chance, one goal! Hello and welcome to the latest episode of the Pure Football Podcast. This is the first episode of a new series where my co-host Danny Corcoran and I, Rhys Jenkins, will analyse the goings-on of UEFA's top club competitions, the Champions League, the Europa League and the Europa Conference League. Today we will look at four of the recent game week's matches and we'll look forward to the second match of these doubleheaders, starting with Liverpool vs Rangers, followed by RB Leipzig vs Celtic, Inter vs Barcelona and finally Eintracht Frankfurt vs Tottenham Hotspur. Throughout this series, we will speak to guests that can provide us expert insights on the clubs we're discussing. And to kick us off, today we are joined by Rangers fan and football writer Patrick Caskey. But without further ado, let's get into the episode. So the first match that we're going to talk about today was the game between Liverpool and Rangers at Anfield. And the game ended 2-0 with a free kick from Alexander-Arnold and a penalty from Mo Salah that was won by a neat dribble by Luis Diaz. And we are joined for this by Patrick Caskey. And uh, how are you doing, Patrick? Yeah, I'm, I'm well, thanks. Uh, it's good to have some hindsight to look back at the game because it was a bit of an emotional wreck and the aftermath on Twitter was quite toxic, to say the least. Even though, I mean, it's Liverpool, so what can you expect being a Rangers fan? But yeah, uh, it, it wasn't great. Uh, I think the expectations were that we'd at least go and give it, a, give it some sort of a go and sort of faltered into sort of like a tepid sort of trading game almost. Yeah, I, I am, I'm going to take more of a, a whole stroll here because... Uh, I didn't actually watch it, but thankfully we're uh, joined by Danny as well. And uh, Danny being a Liverpool fan and Patrick being a Rangers fan, that gives us the perfect opportunity to to get both sides of the story here. So, Danny, how are you? Yeah, I'm good. It's good to be talking about club football. I don't know. Being a Liverpool fan, maybe it hasn't been good to talk about club football so far this season, just how hit and miss it is. But it's good to good to get back into the club football and the sort of Champions League and start to look at that. Obviously, a bit different than what we usually do on here. So, yeah, excited to, to talk about it. Yeah, and it's probably fair to say that you've fared a little better in the Champions League this season so far than you have in the in the Premier League. So, I think we'll start um, by going through some... Uh, I've got some questions for you, Patrick. The first we've got down here is, what was the feeling going into the game from a Rangers perspective? And you kind of mentioned there that you thought you'd maybe give it more of a go than you ended up doing. So, yeah, was that a positive outlook going into it or were you expecting the worst? I think it's mixed emotions. I think it so it sort of depends when you ask someone uh, how, how they're feeling. Obviously, the hubris kind of kicks in closer to the time and it's like, oh, this is the massive game and perhaps this is the sort of culmination of all the work we've put in uh, since we returned to the Premiership in Europe to get the big game against an English team, uh, all eyes on us in the Champions League. So there's this idea in which we'll just go there and give it our all. So this is the stage. Like There's few better grounds to play at, if any, in more football than Anfield. And to do so in the Champions League, it's sort of like the ultimate motivator and sort of the pinnacle for a lot of these players' careers, if not all of them, to be fair. Uh, outside of like winning stuff, this will be one of the biggest 90 minutes they'll play. Um, so there was that idea in which we're going to go and put in a grafting performance and sort of replicate what we get put up on domestically in, in, the, in the Premiership and just try our best. But then obviously there was we weren't sort of the arrogance to think that we could 11 on 11 man up 
and, and play a technical game that could rival Liverpool, even if they are in sort of a rut, which I think is over-dramatised by like a mass of fans and a demanding sort of toxic predatory media. So I think as bad as, or bad in quotation marks, Liverpool were doing, we had realised that we have been much worse and doing so against poorer teams. So our previous Champions League performances, Ajax and Napoli gave us limited hope. If anything, that was a detriment to the idea. But I think a lot of people thought, let's isolate this game and um, use it as the sort of motivation and hope they put in a performance that will sort of be encapsulate our Champions League qualification and sort of dream this year. Because uh, qualifying to the groups, uh, past the group stages is all but all but gone at this point. But yeah, I think the idea was we're going to put in that sort of hard-working performance in which is sort of characteristic of Scottish football um, and try and work our way to beat Liverpool, who are in a bit of a rut. But I think think we failed to do that which is um inexcusable to be fair so yeah i agree with everything you're saying there patrick and i thought it'd be useful to kind of break down some of the the key stats from the game according to uh, thought mob which is opta data it had the game at 2.93 xg for liverpool to 0.42 for uh, rangers and 64 percent possession for liverpool and 36 for rangers so i think that probably kind of reflects what you were saying there, Patrick, in that it was a very one-sided game and uh, Rangers really struggled to have any kind of foothold. So that brings me to my next question. And how did you feel about the setup that Rangers had? Was it was it too negative? Was it how you expected or were there any any kind of surprises there? Um, I think the, it was always going to be too negative in a sense that that was the expectation. I think it would be difficult to be too negative. Um, I think we used the blueprint of our Leipzig away game in April of last year in the semis of the Europa League in which we had a five and then a really compact bank of three and then sort of a, a one pure striker and then someone running off from Kent and then it was Morelos obviously this time. And that was a big discussion, sort of the discussion heading into the game was uh, who's going to start up top. Obviously, you know what Morelos brings, albeit Cholak's been in better form. And I think uh, Van Bronckhorst, uh, made a decision in line with public opinion that Morelos would offer something because he has the ability to sort of sustain possession, be an out ball more so than Cholak. And we'd realised that the only way we will get chances is by having some sustained possession. And Cholak is very much a fox in the box with the penalty um, striker. So he's not really going to offer much against Liverpool. I don't think in the personnel sense there was much sort of questioning behind who was playing uh, just because a lot of our players have been playing poorly, so uh, <laughs> there wouldn't be much outcry if they were dropped. Um, I also do think perhaps it's obviously we're recording this after, so it's being evaluative instead of hypothetical. But I think a lot of people complained about Tillman being played out on the right, uh, just because he's 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 a ten or a second striker, and he doesn't exactly put in a lot of effort out of possession at the best of times. And with Tavernier on the right. There would be, he was sort of our sole beacon of possession, so you need Tillman to sort of help him, and he, he didn't offer that really, to be fair. But I, I don't think before the game people would have complained that much about the setup, but I do think it failed in a sense. But again, uh, it's not really going to be easy to go to Liverpool and achieve something uh, in, in the best of tactical setups with the best of personnel for us. Yeah, that's absolutely fair. And um, Danny, how how did you feel the Liverpool set up in the game, and and you know how how did that face up to to Rangers? Yeah, so I think that was a big thing from from a Liverpool standpoint was the four three three hasn't been working. It's not been intense enough in the midfield. It's not really working at all. And then I don't know if we expected it to change because Klopp had said a few days earlier, I don't have the time to change a tactical setup. But then obviously the team sheet was released and we 
it was either going to be four two three one or four four two or four two two two, whatever you want to call it. But I, I think it it leaned towards the latter in the four four two. So you had Darwin Nunez and Jota up front, and then you had Salah and Diaz kind of playing on the wings just further ahead of the double pivot of Thiago and Henderson. I think it was the sort of game where we could afford to put all four of those attacking guys on the pitch. Like Rangers are obviously got to a European final last year and and have been very good in Europe, but it's also there's a huge gulf in like budget quality like it's a team that Liverpool expect to dominate the ball against I thought it worked quite well against Rangers because Rangers did sit in very deep and although they were deep there was there was space a lot of the time in between the lines which Jota kind of thrived on it was very fluid and that the only person that really stuck to their position was Salah who just likes to kind of camp in that right-hand side space and then come inside, whereas you had like Darwin Nunez popping up on the right, left, through the middle. You had Diaz coming inside. You had Jota just floating about everywhere. And then it forced the kind of two midfielders, especially Henderson, who has been a bit headless chicken-like at times this season. It's a harsh term, but I think that's fair. It forced him to be more disciplined and he had to drop in for Trent Alexander-Arnold. So, yeah, I think it... While it was more attacking, it forced the the midfielders and the defenders to kind of sit back a bit. I think for the first time this season, Trent's average position on the pitch was inside his own half, which is very unlike him. So yeah, I think it was a necessary change and I think it did match up quite well to Rangers because they were always going to sit deep where it is from our point of view. I think we always expected them to. So yeah, that's one of that's one applies to both of you here. But um, I was wondering if there were any standout performances on the pitch, and I'll come to you first, Patrick. Um, from a Rangers point of view, were there any were there any standout positive performances? And if you like, you can reflect on any negative performances as well. I think the obvious one was Alan McGregor. I think um, when you play against a team who just outmatch you in every single aspect, especially away from home, your goalkeeper is either going to crumble or, or become a hero. And obviously there's been a lot of discussion about who plays in goals, whether people actually wanted McGregor to extend last summer. Um, obviously there was the farewell in the cup final and everyone thought he'd leave, but he's, he's here again and, and McLaughlin's been playing quite poorly, sadly enough. So he came in and he was great, sort of characteristic of his ability in the last sort of three years in Europe. I think he had a sort of expect, uh, sort of saved goals per 90, like 0.3 last season in our European run and made some fantastic saves. So this is where, where he really comes alive. It's, it's a bit bittersweet that he's the sole positive performance, being a 40-year-old goalkeeper who came to our academy like 22 years ago. There's no indication of sort of a young player coming onto the scene and making his name in the Champions League or even one of our sort of yeah, slightly younger prime players. So uh, it's a bit not disappointing because whenever a Rangers player does well, it's good. But I think it's indicative of our performance that our goalkeeper was, was the only one who had pass marks, if that. Uh, I think Leon King also was quite decent. He looked comfortable at the at, at the level. He didn't look outmatched. And obviously him being an 18-year-old who's come to our academy, he signed with us two seasons ago professionally after interest from Man City. So that was always going to be good um, if he just looked fine. Uh, but negative performances, I think nine of the 11 were quite poor. Uh, I think the only time we actually had any energy or an intensity and dynamism on the pitch was the last 10 minutes, but that was always going to happen due to game state. Liverpool was going to fade at some point. Or no, perhaps not fade, but just it's 10 minutes, they're 2-0 up, they're not going to put in the same energy just because the game is sort of won. So then when you have Sakala and Matondo who are both genuinely rapid, not just at, at a Scottish level, they were going to offer something. But yeah, Barisic was really poor. Tavernier was quite disappointing. 
uh, being our captain. And obviously, people like to sort of joke about Tavernier for right back for England when he puts up crazy numbers in Scotland. And you would think that this would be his time to sort of show that he can compete with Trent, which is it's never going to happen. But I guess shows the, the confidence that some Rangers fans have in him. And he was really poor. Uh, but I think that's indicative of the performance as a whole, uh, not to sort of scapegoat him specifically. Yeah, and um, Danny, was there anything from a Liverpool point of view, well, any players that you thought were particularly impressive or particularly disappointing? Yeah, I don't think anyone was disappointing. I think from a Liverpool standpoint, it was very refreshing. Everyone looked good. Everyone was filling a role really well. I think the sort of standouts from my side was obviously Trent looked a lot more secure. There was one bit quite late in the game where he did go uh, um, to press and he shouldn't have and then Rangers got him behind but overall he looked a, a lot more assured as sort of creative passing came back which has kind of lacked at times this season just because he's left a bit alone on that right hand side. I thought Jordan Henderson who has come in for a lot of criticism this season had looked a lot better and a lot more disciplined and and sort of knew what he was doing. He had license to sort of go forward but he also knew that he had to be the one to cover. So yeah, I think him as well. And then all the front four, but I think especially Darwin Nunez. I mean, I know he didn't score. I think he had like seven shots in the game and Alan McGregor scored, uh, saved about five of them. And a, a few of them were easy saves, but I think just his movement and his physical presence and, and he's a bit raw on the ball, but what he offers to this team in, in, in terms of finding space and opening up space for others, I think we just look a lot better with him on the pitch, which is a good sign going forward. Yeah, it's a funny one with uh, Nunez because I think he gets a lot of stick on on social media and uh, by by fans in general because I think he technically doesn't look as smooth as a lot of the other players at that level. But um, I like to think of him as a bit of a, like chance magnet. Like he just he's so good at finding space, and by finding space, he maybe he, he creates space for others, and he just he gets on the end of things, and he's. He's a bit of a, a conflicting player to watch. You think that he's maybe not doing great when he takes a heavy touch or something, but I think there's definitely the more you watch him, and I'm sure you'll you, you'd back that, Danny. He's definitely he's definitely a, a big positive to this Liverpool team and something very different to what they've offered in in recent years from their forward players. And uh, I'll come back to you, Patrick. Yeah, I mean we have we have previous with uh, Darwin Nunez. He played I think a total of 15 minutes against us in the in the Europa League in 2020-21 and scored two goals. So it was sort of a McGregor got the better of him this time per se, but I think he, I think yeah he he looked um, positive in the sense that he was making his runs, he was getting good positions, uh, he struck the ball well. It was just a matter of placement as opposed to anything, and I think that comes when you get more reps and you get more game time. Because Liverpool do have the sort of um, luck of having some top forwards, so he isn't necessarily going to play every single minute, but he will be slowly bedded in. And I do think when the margins are greater in the Gulf of Quality. A player like Darwin Nunez is perhaps not as good as Salah, obviously, but to a Rangers side, he's perhaps more dangerous just because his physical profile. Because we have centre-backs at our level where you can't have everything. They'll either be quick and good in the air, but then poor in possession, or opposite, you have to pick two of the three. And Nunez's physical ability is just so much greater than any of our centre-backs and his stamina, to be fair. So he was consistently beating the lines. And it was almost paradoxical, the fact that we camped five players in the back. And put, honestly, on our double pivot, we had seven in the box and he was still finding uh, lots of space. And I guess that's a, 
uh, a, a really good compliment to his ability to navigate and, and exploit the space. Perhaps he didn't get the goal to sort of top off his performance, but I thought he was impressive and I thought this was a good opportunity for him to get some good reps in. And the same with Trent. This is probably the best game for him to get some motivation back and some good form. Uh, obviously, he did it with the free kick, but the fact that we were always going to play deep and he was going to have almost a free opportunity and have limited defensive responsibility, and he, he took it with the two hands. Yeah, I think with with Darwin Nunez as well is that he's as comfortable playing off the left wing. Like he and last year for Benfica, which was a three three draw, that's basically where he played. He was a left winger, so the fact that he can drift out into that area and and someone else can come inside the space makes it a nightmare for sort of defenders to kind of pick up a man. Like it's all very fluid when he's on the pitch because you have you have all these guys that sort of are a bit positionless and especially if you've got Firmino there too he's drifting into space too so yeah I think going forward I would start like more often I think this was a good game for him to just kind of start because it's been a bit stagnated so far but I think that was a glimpse of what sort of Liverpool 2.0 is going to be it's going to be getting him on the pitch and just having these guys kind of floating around different positions at different times yeah, that's um, some really interesting points there. And I think uh, we've reflected quite a lot on the game and individual performances and such. I think it would be good to look forward to, to the, the second round of the double header and maybe what we expect, but also what, what we would like to see kind of change tactically. Um, maybe from a Rangers point of view, how, how do you become more positive in that home leg with the Ibrox crowd behind you? And then Liverpool, um, is, there, is there anything that needs to be done to kind of account for that or is it more of the same uh, more of the same from Klopp I'll come to you first Patrick well um, I think naturally we will revert to our sort of standard formation which is sort of a 4-2-3 4-2-3-1 hybrid depending on who, who's fit but for the purposes of both who's available and the fact that it's Liverpool will play sort of with a probably a double pivot 4-3-3 um, which will allow us to have a bit more be positive on the ball per se and also think naturally playing home especially Ibrox gives us the ability to take it to a team especially early on I remember when we finished our Europa League run last year I think the numbers for the four years we've been in Europe since returning uh, our XG is 300% times at home than it is away and our XG conceded goes down by 13% so we're still quite leaky at home but the ability to do get chances and put them away uh, sort of linearly just goes up uh, the, the goal, I think it's almost sad to say it now, uh, if we were to sort of say that when we came into the group, it's just a score goal. Um, that's the goal. And I think obviously uh, Liverpool will um, have their own motivations because they're still in a in a sort of fight for second and top. I think Napoli will probably finish top. Uh, but Arnott and Ajax's loss at home makes it a lot more difficult for them to finish second. But Liverpool will want to finish top, just the natural advantages of being seated in the first knockout round. So they'll have their own motivations coming in here. But I think the reversion for, to a 4-3-3 will be good. Um, as for the personnel, I think it's a sort of game of musical Chelsea who is fixed and we had seven or eight players out then. Uh, I think we'll probably see a bit more pace on the wings, two natural wingers as opposed to uh, a 10 playing out wide. And uh, I wouldn't be surprised if we see Cholak instead of Morelos just on the nature that we will make more chances at home and he is the, the better placed forward to finish them off. I think we saw that in even just the 10 minutes Anfield he got in a really good position and obviously Alisson made a great save off uh, it was a volley rebound sort of thing but I do think just we'll play more like a, our normal game because as it, the sort of stage demands when we go away to Liverpool we become pragmatic and change our system to sort of counter theirs albeit they didn't really end up doing anything 
positively, whereas at home, uh, I think the fans will just demand that we put in a performance that is somewhat reminiscent of, of a Rangers team, albeit that's incredibly uh, difficult coming up against such a great team like Liverpool, but just something that will provide some positivity because a, a lot of the complaints post-Liverpool were not even about losing because we'd expect you to do so, but it was the manner we did it in and the fact that, sure, we lost 2-0, uh, but there was such limited dynamism in the side and we never even looked like getting a shot, let alone scoring. And uh, that's the one demand is not just to, just to win, but it's to put at least a smile on the fans' faces and that isn't only through winning, but by having positive pieces of play. So I think hopefully we'll see some of that Ibrox, but I wouldn't bet on it. Yeah, that's fair. I think in, in the home tie, the the crowd will demand more than than the performance that we saw at Anfield there. But um, Danny, what about you? Would you like to see any changes for Liverpool? I think this game kind of comes in a weird place for Liverpool because we've got we're recording this on Saturday, so we've got Arsenal tomorrow, and then we've got City uh, the weekend after. So in an ideal world, I think Klopp would have liked to have rested a few players going away to to Rangers, but I don't think we can do that with the the defeat against Napoli in the first game. The fact that if we do want first place in the group, it is quite unrealistic now, but we need to win every game. So I don't think we can we can really afford to rest people. So I think I'd keep it the same as, as what it was on, on Tuesday. Um, I wouldn't change it. I don't think that we can let whatever Rangers do dictate how we're going to play. I think in terms of the quality, we need to be the, the team that are dictating how the game goes. So I I would still start with those four attackers um and the double pivot in midfield rather than going back to the four three three I think I think that might be a permanent change from now on depending on who's fit just because it looked a lot better it looked like people knew what they were doing and were more disciplined and I think if we just go back to the four three three we're gonna end up in a place where that sort of midfield doesn't function again and I don't think we'll do that so yeah I think. I think I'd stick stick the same. I think we might see a few changes, maybe maybe in central defence, maybe up top we'll see Firmino start, but I'd keep the same system. Well, I think that we've we've covered it in quite good depth there, but um, it wouldn't be a preview of a, of a future game without a prediction, would it? I'm going to ask you both for a prediction. So, Danny, is it going to be a Liverpool win? <sighs> yeah, I'll, I'll go for it. <laughs> I'll say, I'll say it'll, it'll be 2 0 again. What about you, Patrick? Are you confident? Uh, not really. I mean, obviously, the hubris will kick in when I get on the train to a tight box. But I would say, obviously, don't take my betting seriously. But I'd say 3-1 Liverpool. I, I just hope, for the sake of my sanity, that we manage to get a goal. And I hope we score first, so there's at least a period of time in the Champions League where we're winning. But yeah, I, th- I do think Liverpool will handle us comfortably. Yeah, I think I think I would be going for a Liverpool win. And um I could see like Rangers getting a goal though, as you say, Patrick. So I'll I'll maybe I'll maybe go for two one Liverpool, but uh, I don't think it'll be a complete kind of thrashing. But I do think Liverpool run out winners. Yeah, that's that's us covered the game. So uh, thank you for joining us, Patrick. It's been great to have you on and get your get your opinions and analytical view on Rangers. No, thank thank you very much for having me. And just quickly before we move on, if you're not familiar with any of Patrick's work, you can find him on Twitter at Patrick Caskey, where you'll find plenty of his written work for outlets such as Scouted Football and the Rangers Review. And the next game we're covering today was the um, Leipzig-Celtic game, which ended 3-1 to Leipzig, with uh, goals from Nkunku and Silva for Leipzig and Jota getting on the score sheet for Celtic. 
This game comes after a period of mixed form from Leipzig. They had a successful 4-0 win at home to a name that I'm not sure how to pronounce, but I think it is Bochum. And that was after losing 3-0 to Gladbach and 2-0 to Madrid. So it's not been a period of consistency for Leipzig. And you could say the same about Celtic recently, as they scraped by in a 2-1 win against Motherwell. And that was coming after a 2-0 defeat to St Mirren. So what were your thoughts going into the game, Danny? I think this is a hard one. It was a hard one to sort of gauge because it felt like Celtic's best chance to sort of get an away win in the Champions League. But at the same time, they're coming up against like a, a very good, in recent times, Bundesliga team. So you, do you really expect a Scottish Premiership team to, to be taking points away? I mean, we saw Rangers do it to Leipzig last year, but this is now a Leipzig team with Marco Rosa. Um, and like you, you mentioned, they have been... Con- inconsistent but their highs have been really high under him so far so like they beat Dortmund 3-0 and I think that was his first game in charge then they had big defeats to to Gladbach and uh, and 2-0 to Madrid which is understandable and then again the 4-0 against Bochum but I think uh, I heard someone recently say that that they are the worst team in the Bundesliga this season Uh, I think from a Celtic point of view this is a game which would have a lot of space for them to attack. It was a game in which Celtic had a lot of injuries going into it. So their centre-back partnership was Jensen Welsh um, and Abada was out as well. So it kind of had to reshuffle things for Ange. But I think going into it, I think it was semi-confident for Celtic that they would pick up points. Obviously, that didn't happen. But yeah, I think I think that that's a bit disappointing for Celtic. Yeah, I went into the game kind of thinking that Celtic might get a result as well just because I think their their performances so far in the Champions League have been better than than the results like the 3-0 against Madrid I think it's fair to say Madrid deserved it in the end but I did think Celtic had periods of that game where they were they were pretty excellent and similar could be said about the Shakhtar game um Celtic came out the traps really fast they they seem to they seem to always have a period of these games where they're they're totally dominant and I thought that getting one point out of those two games was quite harsh. So I had a feeling that something might kind of go their way. Um, and as it as it turned out, it, it wasn't really to be. And it was it was a little disappointing in the end. The game um, to to cover some of the the main stats of the game. The XG came out at two point two five to Leipzig versus the zero point nine two to Celtic with a fifty nine fifty nine percent sorry uh, possession share for Leipzig. And I think that, to be honest, Celtic were lucky. It could, it could have been more. Uh, the there was the offside goal by Sabozlai, where it it was it was probably a fair call to be offside, but Joe Hart wasn't saving it anyway. So I mean, you can say you can say either way, but f- fair enough that it was called offside. And then you know, I think did they have another disallowed goal from Nkunku? Uh, I can't remember exactly. You might be able to correct me there, Danny. But I just felt like over the course of the game, it was very chaotic from both sides, but. I don't think Celtic deserved the point. Yeah, there was um, a very, very close in Kunku scored a chip over Joe Hart. I think it was quite it was within the first twenty minutes, and that was sort of the warning signs for Celtic. They looked incredibly open. I think well, I should touch on how good in Kunku was in that game. He was by far the best player on the pitch. His ability to sort of find the space between two centre backs and then use their blind side to make runs and just cause havoc the entire game was was huge for Leipzig. I think 
without him, that's a very even matchup. But he just sort of lifted Leipzig to that level that got them the win. And obviously, he will be moving to Chelsea. I think that's basically confirmed now for about £60 million pounds or 60 million euros i mean celtic couldn't dream of selling a player for that value so like that's a really high quality player that leipzig have that makes the difference on these champions league nights where so so much of it comes down to individual quality yeah i've just got to echo the the performance of evan kunku there He, he was absolutely fantastic one of my favourite moments from him was that kind of lobbed ball he played into the path of uh, Shimikan and uh, who played it over to I think it was Andre Silva for the for their third goal I think it was just just moments like that where it's just sheer quality just being able to just make something happen uh, entirely by himself and yeah he stood out like a like a sore thumb um, as just just like the best player on the park so I would totally agree with you there yeah I think for as good as like some of Leipzig's moments were like. It was very, very lackadaisical from Celtic. It was, like you've mentioned, it was really sloppy. So there, that third goal that you did mention, that was just sheer quality from Leipzig. Like, Nkunku plays it over to Simakan, who plays the first-time volley cross into Silva, who, who has the time and space to just put it in the goal. But but the first two goals, from a Leipzig pr- perspective, is Cal- it was a Celtic corner. Cal McGregor loses it on with a heavy touch on the edge of the opposition box. And when Leipzig break, Celtic have little to no defensive structure. So there's just an overload of Leipzig players. And then there's another error in that move, whereas I don't know who touches it, whether it's Callum McGregor trying to get back or if it's the Leipzig player, but the ball runs through and Joe Hart doesn't commit. And he, but he doesn't stay on his line, so it kind of leaves him in no man's land and then Kunku can easily go round him. So that goal is just a catalogue of errors from a Celtic perspective. And then the second goal comes... Seconds after Celtic get really lucky with Sobozai is able to like dribble past a few players and we know the one quality he has is his long range shooting, like his technique to get an incredible amount of power and accuracy with like little to no backlift. And Celtic kinda let him just hit it and they obviously get away with it a little bit. I, I'm not convinced that was the right decision that felt very harsh. That, that that goal was ruled out but then Joe Hart plays it right into the path of a Leipzig player it's a really sloppy pass and the pass isn't on Greg Taylor's covered by about three Leipzig players so even if Greg Taylor receives that ball pressure is going to be immediately on him and then they obviously can just just put it in the goal so I think from from a Celtic perspective like that's a game that they lost like Leipzig didn't really have to work for a few of their goals even though I think they did have more quality on the pitch like Celtic threw a lot of that game away yeah so I totally agree with you Danny I think that yeah it was it was a game thrown by Celtic in a lot of ways and yeah Joe Hart really was really really poor for for that that goal with the, the ball to Greg Taylor also I do think um it's interesting to talk about the one where um and Kunku rounds Hart because uh, I was in the pub with my pals talking about it after the game and there were some people saying that they thought it was it was McGregor's fault that goal but I think it was it was definitely shared responsibility because Joe Hart just kind of ends up standing there and and as you said no man's land and he needs to do more you either stay back and kind of glue yourself to your line and hope that you can make the save or you you really commit to it you don't just kind of stand there in the middle and just make it so easy for Nkunku to just just take it past you so I definitely, yeah, I definitely agree that Hart was Hart was poor there and so poor uh, after the after the disallowed goal for that um, for the second. Yeah, I think from like that goal was just a real catalogue of like errors from a Celtic point of view. I think it highlighted quite a lot of 
of issues with how the team could be in Europe. I mean, I know there's injuries and I know they don't have the first choice defence. But if you if you've got a corner in Europe and you lose the ball on the edge of the opposition box, you can't be so open that it's extremely easy for for the opposition to just run through your team. I think Nkunku was sort of fortunate that ball broke to him, but there was about three other Leipzig players on the other side that could have easily got the ball. So like while I think blame can be put on Cal McGregor, it was it was a bad touch, but that can happen. Blame can be put on Joe Hart because it was it wasn't proactive goalkeeping and he really did make it easier for them to score but I think that was just a structural issue with how the team was set up as well um, I think we should kind of touch on Celtic's goal was really good and that's sort of what they'll be looking to do at home next week so Hitati wins the ball back in the middle of the pitch quickly plays a ball to Kyogo and then Celtic are, are, are through and open it's, it's, Jota's got a clean run into the box and Kyogo looks up slots it to him and puts it away I think for next week, Celtic will want to create more of those moments. Um, I'm not sure on the fitness of a few players. I think Carter Vickers is back today, so he should start again next week, and that makes Celtic a lot more secure at the back. Um, but I think they'll want to sort of feed off the crowd and use the chaos to their advantage this time, whereas it felt that Leipzig really thrived on the chaos in the first leg. Yeah, I've got to agree with everything you said there. And I think it is interesting to look at Celtic um, kind of talking about the the, out, the sort of out of possession because I think they often aren't challenged in Scotland um, enough um, off the ball and when you come up against quality opponents you saw them against Madrid as well they they can be carved open and I know it's unfair to compare them against the quality of Madrid and even Leipzig to an extent with players like Nkunku and Werner and things like that um, but it, it could I mean looking looking at how to, how do you, how do Celtic improve under Ange I think it's clearly the, the sort of out of possession um, game that, that needs work and yeah, they just they they were leaving themselves so open at times, and it was just such a chaotic game of football. Um, so I'm sure that Ange won't be happy with that at all, and uh, that will be that'll be something he tries to rectify. But also, they might not have to so much at home because they're going to have more of the ball, and that is where they thrive, as we said. So it may, it might just be that the the flow of the game, the momentum, um, could carry Celtic uh, to a much better performance rather than any kind of tactical tweaks that they might need to make yeah I think if you look at like sort of that first half against Real Madrid as they're like their like level at home in the Champions League I think if they put in a similar performance against Leipzig and Shakhtar at Celtic Park gonna come away with at least a goal or two like they they will make chances it's just it's just about that sort of frailty out of possession and I think once they concede sort of one or two, their heads go right down. Um, so like it, it happened especially against Real Madrid and it, and it happened in, in Germany. So I think after the second goal, I, I think Celtic were just a bit all over the place. I don't think they really believed they could get back into it. And and Leipzig had a few chances even after it went to, to 3-1 to make it 4-1, 5-1. So I think just that mentality thing as well will be something they need to overcome. Yeah, definitely, and I think I, I do back Celtic to get a result at home against Leipzig. Um, I would probably, I mean, I don't think it will be a, a big a big scoreline, but I would I would I would say maybe I think they'll score a couple of goals, and I could see them winning two one or two or three one against Leipzig. I do think that they, I do think that Celtic on their day, um, with that crowd behind them, like can really can really hurt teams, and I don't think Leipzig have been outstanding this season by any means, but 
it's it's in those games when you have that quality and you leave yourself as open as Celtic did. It, you're gonna get you're gonna be burnt. So so yeah, I think um I think I'll go for a Celtic win. Um, it would be my prediction. Yeah, I think I'll back Celtic to to pick up the points. Um, in the home home leg, I think it will be a, a wild chaotic game. I mean, it's Marco Rosa and Ange Postecoglou. It's two managers that won't really compromise on on their philosophies. So I think maybe like a three two, four three, like a big high scoring game is is might be what we're in for next Wednesday. Yeah, I'm going to clarify that when I said not a big score, I didn't mean that there won't be lots of goals. I more meant that it won't be like a a four one Celtic win. I don't think it'll be it'll be a goal a goal or possibly two in it. But yeah, hopefully we see lots of goals anyway for from a neutral point of view. So the third game we're going to talk about today was the match between Inter Milan and Barca. So the game ended one 0 to Inter with a, a goal from outside the box from Chalanoglu. The game was fairly tight on the underlying numbers with an XG of 0.18 to 0.14 for Barcelona. But the possession was at Barcelona having a 72% lying share. So that probably tells a story of how the game went. And yeah, we'll start the discussion with some kind of pre-match expectations. So Danny, you like your, your Italian football. What were you thinking coming into the game about Inter and about their season so far? Yeah, I think in how poor Inter have started the season has kind of been overshadowed by a lot of like the Allegri and Juve stuff. I mean, Inter behind Juve in the league are about ninth. They've lost four games already in the league. They are well off the pace. I think they're having real issues this season where they'll score first, but then they won't be able to sustain that and they'll end up losing. So they scored first in the Milan derby. Uh, and they lost that game 3-2. They scored first against Udinese away, lost that game 3-1. They scored first against Roma at home and lost that game 2-1. So I think they're having real issues with with kind of being consistent throughout a game. Barella has been a bit out of form so far this season. Things just aren't really clicking. Lukaku's not really come back yet since since joining. I think he's been out with, with sort of issues. So yeah, I didn't really have much confidence in Inter getting the result out of this game. I think you'll touch on it more, but Barca have looked a lot better this season, uh, especially in the league. And this is sort of a crucial game for both these teams because if you assume that Bayern will win this group and that it looks very much like they will, this is a huge game. And I, I didn't really see Inter winning the game. Whether Inter really deserved to win the game or did enough on a regular basis to win those sort of games with the performances remains to be seen but yeah I I didn't have much confidence in them um, do you have any thoughts on how Barca have started the season and how they lined up for this game sure so I've um, I don't watch that much Spanish football but for the purposes of this and in the last couple of weeks I've just been I've been quite interested to see how Xavi had been getting on with Barca this season and to be honest they've been pretty scintillating in the league so they're unbeaten in the league since, well, without, without they've won every game in the league since August. So in September and October so far, they have won every single league game and they've been pretty dominant. They are looking, uh, yeah, they're looking stronger than they did towards the back end of last season. Anyway, that's for sure. And that kind of had me thinking that they, 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 would, be, they would be strong favourites coming into this one. They're kind of playing back to the way that you'd more expect Barcelona to play than they perhaps had been, had been recently before Xavi. And... A lot of that is a kind of high-pressing system with kind of trying to exploit the sort of 1v1 ability of the, the wide players who have been Rafinha and Dembele this season. And as we all know from, from watching them over the years, they are both excellent 1v1 players. 
So yeah, I think I was I was expecting a Barca win. So when I saw the scoreline before I'd seen the game back, I was pretty I was pretty surprised to see the Inter come out winners. Yeah, so if we look at like sort of the, the stats from the game, I mean the XG of Inter was only zero point one eight, and but they did contain Barca to just zero point four seven. So it seemed like a really tight and, and cagey affair. Barca dominated the ball, having seventy two percent to uh, Inter's twenty eight percent. So how do you think that the two teams matched up with each other throughout the game? Was it a case of Inter sort of using that three slash five at the back that they have to break on on Barcelona and were they happy to just let them have the ball? Yeah, so I think the the story of the game was like how Inter set up out of possession to like counter Barca's in possession approach. So Barca attack with like a front with a front five kind of thing. Whether that is um the fullback where one of the fullbacks getting forward and one of the centre mids joining the front line kind of thing, it, it does vary. Yeah, so we, we saw the Barca front five basically being matched up by the inter back five. And that Barca did struggle with this. So they struggled to get a free man. So often what they'll do is they'll work the ball and they'll create overloads um on like say the left hand side just to try and find the switch over to the right-hand side for whether that be Dembele or Rafinha, whoever's the kind of natural width over there. Um, and yeah, Inter, Inter did do very well, to be fair to them, and kind of nullifying this um, by going like man-to-man and uh, and being quite tight to them. So yeah, that was one thing I noticed. Um, and that is probably why it was such a cagey affair, because as we, we see Barca have so much of the ball, and that's kind of by system from Inter, that's what Inzaghi will have been planning for. So... In the build-up, the two inter-forwards who were Correa and Martinez, they were kind of pushed up against the centre-backs. So that's like one-to-one. So they're to outnumber that, they'd often have Sergio Roberto kind of being involved in the deep build-up. And and that meant that, yeah, basically Barca were kind of man-to-man across the rest of the pitch. So they couldn't really find they couldn't really find that spare, spare man. So what happened was the game went on. And I'm sure if you look at the sort of uh, XG maps and things of the match, it'll, it'll be a kind of an uptick in Barca's quality of chances towards the end of the game. And yeah, basically what happened was Inter were dropping deeper and the front two weren't pressing the the centre-backs as much as they were originally. And that meant that you kind of had Sergio Roberto freed up and that led to them being able to create a few more chances. But they honestly, they struggled with, they struggled with that final ball basically and the quality of the chances they were creating. So so they, they couldn't really create as much as they maybe normally would in, uh, in their domestic games. But I think that it was a it was a good match from from Inter. They they did well, but I do think that any kind of suggestion that they sort of they were totally deserving winners is are possibly a, a little bit exaggerated. I think that you could you could argue that they they came out a little bit lucky in the in the chances, and we'll talk about some of the refereeing decisions as well. Yeah, so I think that's what we'll, we'll go on to. It did feel like a game of very tight margins. So in the first half, Inter would have likely had a penalty if it wasn't for an extremely close offside call. Um, I'm not sure the Barca player was that that handled it, but it bounced up and, and he kind of batted it away. And that was basically a penalty until they found the offside. Then you had Pedri's disallowed goal. So he, he put the ball in the back of the net. And I think everyone just kind of assumed it was definitely a goal, but on closer look, it brushes Fatty's hand as the cross comes into the box. And then there's the one that obviously has become the big talking point. So there was a clear handball by Denzel Dumfries in the 90th minute, and it wasn't given. I think the reason that UEFA have given is because they they thought it was the Barca player that hand it hit, but it quite clearly hits the Inter player's hand. So uh, what were your thoughts on those sort of decisions throughout the night? Yeah, so the fatty one, I think we can say 
it was it was a handball, but it was just so harsh. Like, I don't know, it's one of these things. You've got VAR there, and they're supposedly they're going to make the right the right call. And I think yeah, by the by the law, that is the right call to say it's handball. But it just feels so unfair because it really didn't change the outcome of that attack. Like, I don't think that the ball stroking his hand as when he didn't even see it coming is going to change anything. But like you could make the same argument about Dumfries, I guess. Um, so, yeah, I think Barca were a little unlucky that, that he happened to be there at that time before the Pedri disallowed goal. And then for the, yeah, the Dumfries one, I honestly have I have no idea how, how they can miss that. It seems so harsh. And I think a draw probably would have been a fair result. So if they'd got that penalty at the end, you know, I would have probably said, you know what, Inter did well to nullify Barca's threat. Uh, even if they didn't offer as much as I would have kind of hoped they would on the counter, a draw would have been fair, but yeah, I, I do just feel feel as though that Barca losing this game is a little bit harsh. And looking forward to the next the next match, I, I think that Barca have have reason to be to be confident. And I don't know if Inter will be able to pull that off a second time in a row. Yeah, I think just briefly before we move on to looking forward, I think we should touch on the the actual Inter goal was a bit of, bit of quality from them. So you had Demarco, who is very good with the ball at his feet. He can play in midfield, he can play at wing-back, which is what he was in this game. Swept the ball right out to Darmian. Um, there was a bit more play, but that moved to interrupt the pitch quickly. And then, obviously, you have Chalanoglu, who, for all his flaws, and he's not someone I particularly rate very highly, his, his long-distance shooting and technique to, to find the corners is, is extremely good. And, and he put that right in the corner. That was pretty much unsavable. So that was a real moment of quality in a game that, that had a lot of lacklustre attacking at times. Um, so, yeah, let's look ahead to next week. What do you think Barca want to change to, to sort of get the group or the destiny of the group back in their favour? Well, to be honest, like, I'm not sure that... I'm not sure they will make massive changes. There could be personnel changes because they've, they have seen quite a bit of rotation, especially at the back this season. They've got a lot of options. Like, when I've been looking back at their matches... I watched uh, the first half against Bayern and I watched the first half against Sevilla. And yeah, Jules Koundé had been playing right back at times, kind of also rotating into centre-back at times. I think they might look to get him back in the team. So yeah, there's there's some personnel changes they might make. And I don't think I know Barca well enough to know exactly what they're likely to, to do. But at home, Barca, they, I think that if they kind of go out and play a similar game, I, I just do think that they'll come out on top. It's a lot harder to go away from home and and kind of hang in there uh, as Inter were towards the end of the game. Would you agree with that, Danny? Yeah, I would say so. I think it'll be easier for Barca at home to like sustain that pressure. I think the blueprint for Inter doesn't really change. Like this, while it was at home, very much a lot of it felt like an away game and how they approached the game. I think that they know that Barcelona will dominate the ball. They're not going to try and and sort of do that. I think it'll be interesting to see. I'm not sure about Brozovic's fitness, but he offers a lot, especially in away games with with evading pressure um, and getting the ball up the pitch. He'll drop in alongside the centre-backs and be able to find players. So from an inter standpoint, I, I really don't see much changing. I think they'll, they'll try and do the same things. But yeah, if you were going to ask me to predict the game, I, I would only really see Barcelona taking over and, and probably taking a, a lot more chances. I mean, Lewandowski had the chance right at the end that he just couldn't get on the end of. I think 
Barca have the new camp behind them and, and things like that, and they approach the game in the same way, I really can't see past them taking the three points. Yeah, for, for sake of fairness, I guess the case to make for Inter here would be, as you say, if, if they can get Brozovic back in the team, and we know Barcelona like to press high, that I mean, that kind of like press resistance and things there you have with him, that could help him get out of the pitch and maybe create more chances. Because as we said, with the XG only creating 0.18, really not high quality of chances there. And I think it was because they were struggling to get up the pitch a lot of the time. So with the way that Barca play at home, I think there could be more chances on the counter. Um, but yeah, I don't see massive tactical shifts from either team going into the, the second fixture between these two. So to finish off the podcast, we're going to look at the Frankfurt Spurs game. And this was a nil-nil, so you might be wondering why we're covering it. But unfortunately, I'm a Spurs fan and we had made that decision before before the game had taken place. And yeah, it, it wasn't the, the worst nil-nil. There, there was a decent quality of chance for both teams. I mean, I think the Opta XG models had it at about 0.98 to Frankfurt to 1.48 to Spurs, with Spurs having edge in the possession at 56%. So... Going into the game, Spurs have definitely been in mixed form off the back of a really disappointing uh, North London derby defeat to Arsenal, where basically we saw a goalkeeping howler and a, and a shocking red card totally kill the game off from a Spurs point of view. But that can't take anything away from Arsenal in that game, who, who were totally dominant. And then looking at Frankfurt, they've actually been on a, on a really strong run. After beating Marseille in their last Champions League match, they've won 3-1 to Stuttgart and beating league leaders at the time, Union Berlin, 2-0 in the previous game. Uh, yeah, so Reese, what was the feeling going into the game from from your perspective, a Spurs fans overall perspective, especially with the the loss last time out to Sporting in the Champions League um, and the Arsenal defeat? I think honestly, it's been it's it's quite pessimistic at the moment. Like Spurs fans aren't feeling too good about things. Just generally this season, we've we've had some good results and and we've scraped buying games, but maybe not been entirely convincing. So. So yeah, the, the the late goals in the sporting game were a real a real blow um to the kind of confidence and the position in the group because I think a draw away to Frankfurt, as much as it's not ideal, it's it could have been it could have been an okay result if you'd maybe got a draw away to sporting or even won that game. So yeah, I think that the the late goals from sporting and then the derby defeat just really put a, a kind of dampener on on sort of the feeling about the game, to be honest. So how did Spurs set up in this game and I've seen on Twitter and things like that. Is there a frustration that that Conte's sort of persisting with this three four three system and formation? Sure. So there's been a lot of clamour for Conte to shift to the three five two for the Arsenal game and for this game, I would say. And he's just not budging. He basically he's been he's been wedded to this system by a couple of a couple of games from the moment he came in, pretty much. And it has served as well in in the most part, but. There's clear problems with it in terms of when you don't have that playmaker, which we'll come on to in Kulisevsky on the pitch, on the right-hand side of the front three. You just really lack ball progression uh, up the pitch. And this brings us to another point of, of great debate, and that has been Emerson Royale, who who was actually sent off in the Arsenal game, but obviously he was allowed to play in the Champions League because the, the suspensions don't carry over. And yeah, I think there's been a lot of frustration with not only the persistent with the 3-4-3, but also the persisting with the same personnel, even when things haven't been working. So we see the same front three, or the same 11, actually, that, that played against Arsenal playing in this game. And I think that that, you know, that doesn't really inspire confidence after the result. So, yeah, I think it would be fair to say there's frustrations uh, brewing in the, in the support and, you know, 
the game against Leicester where Son came on and scored a hat-trick, there had been a switch to a 3-5-2. And I think that that is the system that a lot of fans were were really hoping that they would see in this game. But it wasn't to be. Yeah, and then you touched on on him there and he's someone that I really like as well. So Kulisewski has become quite important for this Spurs team. How, how big has absence in the last few games become to this to this Tottenham team? Yeah, I think uh, quite important is probably a, a massive understatement as well. He's he's almost become one of the, well, he's arguably top maybe top two or three most important players in the team. To be honest, just lose so much, so much when he's not on the pitch, um, and I think that was evident. It's just the the lack of control Spurs had in this game against Frankfurt. The the chat the kind of quality of chances that were created weren't weren't the worst. It was. I think Statsbomb even had the XG at 2.5 for Spurs. So, I mean, that's quite quite a high value there. Like, we, we did have chances and we had chances where we didn't even get on the end of, of uh, sort of dangerous crosses and things. But it's just, yeah, the, you la- the lack of sort of command on the game. Um, I think a lot of that comes down to not having Kulosevsky as well. And even in, on, in transitional situations, Kulosevsky can really carry the ball well up the pitch and he kind of makes up for the, the lack of that from Emerson Royale as well. So, I think that, yeah messing Kulosevsky has been huge yeah I think I'd, I'd echo that it's like with Kulosevsky's ball progression he's got this style which is kind of like a he looks very unnatural and like he's going to lose the ball but he's always in control of the situation and like you said with, with Emerson Royale it, it, there it kind of compensates for that uh, obviously there were two teams in this game so we'll, we'll talk a bit about Frankfurt and what and what they offered in the game so how do you what were your thoughts on Frankfurt as, as a team and, and how they dealt with the game? Yeah, I thought they did well. Um, they're You have to give a shout-out to the fans because their fans are, like, superb. Like, the atmosphere was absolutely electric, and I think that really spurred them on. There's a lot of the game that Spurs spent, like, in their own half, which has been a bit of a recurring theme this season. And some a player that really stood out to me was the left wing-back, Knauf, who I think um, we'd spoken about before, Danny, was uh, originally come from Dortmund. And yeah, he got three shots off in this game and he just, he was always looking a threat. And um, I think, yeah, he really impressed me. And I think that they, they brought a real intensity to the game that um, Spurs did struggle with at times, uh, even if maybe Spurs kind of came out with the, the better of the chances in the game, you could say. I, I was impressed by Frankfurt and um, they seemed to have confidence, which, which would make sense when you look at their recent run of form and three straight victories. Um, so yeah, so what can I... I did notice in the sort of the highlights I just watched back, like the areas that he was popping up in isn't somewhere you'd really expect a wing back to be. So I think there was a chance where the ball was dinked over the top and he was the only player in, in the penalty box. And it's a, it's a difficult volley, but it's just him and Hugo Lloris. So I think that he is definitely some someone that you kind of goes under the radar um, in an attacking sense. Like it's hard to cover those sort of guys because you don't expect them to pop up in that sort of area. So so he gets lost with tracking the man. I would also say on that that he had he played quite an inverted role. I thought like he was coming inside a lot. It was almost in a way um, linking it back to Spurs is that almost we've seen Matt Doherty play sometimes when he's been on the left, um, kind of popping up in these central areas from wing back. Um, and as you say, I think that is quite hard to track uh, as a defender because it's not really what you expect. So that is definitely something to something to note there. And um. I was also quite impressed with the uh, yeah, just that their defense in general was 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 quite strong. I think it was a game where, as you may expect with a scoreline of nil nil, it was a game where the attackers were maybe the ones that struggled to deliver. Um, when the rest of the team were actually kind of, uh, were, were doing okay. It was the the attackers maybe weren't finishing their chances or weren't 
weren't quite quite on form. Yeah. So I think the last question that we kind of thought would be good to ask is obviously Conte has a reputation for not really being the best manager when it comes to European football. I think he reached the he reached the Europa League final with Inter in sort of that COVID season where it was a mini tournament. But ever since he's really struggled, especially in the Champions League. Obviously, Spurs have had a bit of a stuttering start to the campaign. I think it's they've drawn one, lost one, won one. So do you think that it's, it is just history repeating itself with him in Europe or, or are there reasons to be optimistic? I think that you could make a case for both, to be honest, because it's definitely been a really underwhelming campaign so far. But I think you could make an argument that if they can kind of get through the groups and, you know, get into the knockout stages, I think this Spurs team is quite well set up for a knockout kind of environment, just with the 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 sort of the really solid defence that we've seen all season, really limiting teams to to the kind of poor quality of chances, like shots from outside the box, crosses into the box for headers and things like that, really limiting this quality of chance that teams are getting. So I think when you pair that with the kind of attacking threat and the counter-attack threat that they've got in players like uh, Son, Kane, Richarlison, Kulosevsky, I think that if you can get through this kind of almost like turgid group, you might see the kind of upside of this team in, in Europe. But I do think that there's just an undeniable like Conte in Europe factor where it just it just is not good in the Champions League. And I don't know what it is, but it could be the, the kind of lack of time for preparation. I think there's a clear relationship between the, the amount of time Conte has to prepare for a game and the, the kind of the outcome of the game. I think there's some stuff on Twitter I've seen from Spurs fans where they compare matches where they've had maybe four plus days of preparation time versus those with less than that. And the results are just clearly better with the more preparation time. And I think with a coach as meticulous as Conte, I think it's probably that he likes to, to sort of set up and drill his teams. And when you condense them to those kind of, those games together, he just doesn't get as much time in the, on the training pitch with his players. And it seems to have a, a kind of a detrimental impact. So, so yeah, I think that there's a, a good chance that Conte will just never really cut it in the Champions League as, a, as, as much of a shame that may be for, for Tottenham. But yeah, um, I, I'm maintaining some optimism that the kind of, the sort of counter-attacking talent and attacking threat that Spurs have from players like Kane and Son can, uh, can help in the knockout stages should Spurs reach that far. And finally, we'll finish up with what would you like to see different? Obviously, you've just mentioned that Conte's better when he does have that time on the training pitch. I think Spurs have Brighton this weekend and it's a really quick turnaround because it's Tuesday for the game at home against Frankfurt. Is there anything you'd like to see in that game, maybe a tactical switch or different personnel coming in? Sure. So I think looking forward, uh, I'm probably leaning towards the, the 3-5-2 system. It's not ideal having uh, Rodrigo Bentinker, um, Hoiberg and uh, Basuma uh, as your three in there. Um, but to be honest, like I think that it, it's maybe necessary, the lack of kind of control in midfield that Spurs have had th- at times this season, it's kind of it's becoming detrimental to the team. And I think that teams are just looking at that midfield and seeing that they can overrun them. And yeah, I, I would maybe, maybe less so for the Frankfurt game, but looking to the kind of Brighton game, uh, I think it would be good to experiment at least with it. And hopefully uh, Kulosevsky can be back soon. And I'm not sure if he's back in time for Frankfurt, but uh, if he is, I would maybe stick for the 3-4-3. Uh, but if he's not, I would maybe try try and pack that midfield a little bit more uh, and go with the 3-5-2. And, and I know you don't like doing them, but 
if you had to make a prediction for what's going to happen in this game, what are you going to say? I'm going to be optimistic and say that I think that Spurs will get the win at home because you get three games left in the group. Two of them are at home to Sporting and Frankfurt. And I think that they get the two wins, you basically secure your qualification. And our home form has been a lot, lot better than our away form this season. So I think that that trend will continue and we'll get a win. And, you know, I th- I'm be quite confident. I think I'll say 2 0 Spurs for the, for the second. It's not a leg because it's not a knockout, but the second round of fixtures here. And what do you think the score will be, Danny? I'm not really someone that's seen a lot of Frankfurt this season. I think they do kind of suit away games. Um, but I think maybe the quality and just the, the moments of, of magic that that Spurs front line can, can conjure up, we'll, we'll see them through the game. So I'll say 2-1 to, to Tottenham. You know what this means. <laughs> but <laughs> we, had, we had to do it. We had to do it. So that brings us to the end of the podcast, guys. Um, it's the first one we've done like this, so we're, we'll hopefully get we'll hopefully refine it and kind of get better as we go on. But um, it's been fun to you know take a look at some club football for for pure football the, as a change from from just the international stuff. And Danny, if any of the listeners don't follow you on any social media, where can they find you? Yeah, so it's uh, at Calcio underscore Danny, uh, and where can they find yours? Sure. So that's on Twitter for Danny. And the same for me um, is at RT Jenky, and that's Jenky with a Y. You've been listening to the Pure Football Podcast. That's us for the first episode of this new series focusing on European football. Thank you very much for listening. And until next time, goodbye.